The Science Inside Podcast. The Science Inside. Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on OSN 88.1. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Elna Schutz and as every week we bring you some great science content here from the studios of VOW FM. We spend an hour just talking about great science and how it relates to the world and to your world. Today it is our feature scientist uh, edition. This happens once a month if you're a regular listener to us and what we do is we take a specific scientist, somebody who who's really doing the hard work of chasing that knowledge. And we talk to them about their work, about what it means and what it's like to be them. And hopefully it'll inspire you not just to know more about the world, but also about the scientists working hard in South Africa. Today we have a physio with us. And if you've ever had the bad luck of spraining an ankle or a shoulder, you'll know that physios are your best friend. But this one focuses on a very specific kind of physiotherapy. So physiotherapy in general is when you're trying to restore the body's normal functioning. You're trying to maybe prevent a disability or take care of something coming coming out of trauma and injury. That's what they do as a whole. But some physiotherapists, like the one we'll be speaking today, uh, to today, focus on the tiny humans among us on children and how helping uh, their bodies and um, you know doing the best that we can for them can actually set them up to a future that is a lot more um, healthy and just pain free that's what we're going to be focusing on today with Natalie Benjamin Damons she is a lecturer at the University of Wits right here and she has her masters is awaiting the outcome of her PhD and has published several journal articles and worked on in international collaborations just to mention some things recently she received the research excellence award for next generation researchers from the National Research Foundation which is a very prestigious award very great for it to be awarded to somebody here at Wits University and as I said her particular focus is on pediatrics specifically one of the things she's been focusing on that I'm looking forward to talking to her about is helping children who are living with HIV I'm excited for this conversation because we speak about HIV and AIDS a lot in this country and on this show within medical circles. But so often our conversations are around the causes and the specific medical treatments. We talk about how can we prevent it and we talk about what medication, what what specific treatments can be given. But of course, there's a lot around that, whether you are a child or an adult living with HIV and AIDS, there is your quality of life. There's your ability. It's what you what the virus and the disease are doing to your body as a whole. And that is what people like Natalie are focusing on and trying to make better. As with every single feature scientist, we'll be speaking to her about her science, but also her personal journey as a scientist. I'm really looking forward to that. But of course, we have a lot more on the show. We have our unscience, which as every week, we take a little bit of a break from the rest of the show. And we look at something so ridiculous, so strange that you won't believe that scientists are spending their time, effort and money 
on researching this and putting it in a journal article. Today it's all about lizards, so make sure you catch that. And then earlier in the show, next up, we will be focusing on our science news. But if you're interested in any of this, if you have maybe considered going into physiotherapy or working with fields that touch on the fields of, of children and HIV and AIDS, why don't you send us questions for Natalie? I'm sure you have some things that you'd love for her to answer or just comment on any of the other things in the show. You can do so as Vow FM. That's V-O-W. We're on Facebook and on Twitter. Just make sure that you use that hashtag science inside so that we can find you and answer. But if you're not listening live, welcome to everyone who is listening to The Science Inside on podcast. We are on iTunes and hopefully wherever you find your podcasts, as well as our website, which is vits.journalism.coza forward slash science as every single week. We also have that WhatsApp line. If you just want to hoi us a quick a quick WhatsApp, it's not a problem because our number is 84 as every single week. But let's kick it off with our science news. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. So here on the show, we love to just kick it off with some of the things that are happening in the wider world of science. Get us updated. Get us just charged with some knowledge about what's happening out there. And as every single week, I do so with one of our producers. Producer Bridget Lepera is with me. Hi, Bridget. Good day, Elna. What do you have for us? Well, I have an interesting story. It's about how the jumping genes efforts of producing a possible depopulating event is averted naturally in the DNA cells. A team of researchers from the Carnegie Institution for Science have found that reproductive stem cells use a different adaptive response to quickly tame invading jumping gene elements by activating a so-called DNA damage checkpoint. Almost half of our DNA is said to be made up of jumping genes, which move around the genome in developing um, sperm and egg cells. So the genome actually just, it's its this um, transportation of information throughout the cells. Okay, so are these cells doing this so that they try to um, avoid birth defects? Is that what you're saying? Yes, um, Correct. Well, these cells are able to trigger DNA um, damage, damage, actually. So it's um, mutations, sterility or death, right? So organisms have survived these invasions before and very little is known about how this adaptability came about. Okay, so if you're saying this came about, that means it hasn't always been like this. Yes, that's correct too. So Barbara McClintock from the institution received a Nobel Prize on her discovery of jumping genes, and this was in 1983. And these jumping genes are called transposons. And due to their jumping dexterity of skipping around the genome in developing sperm and cell uh, and egg cells, their invasion triggers DNA damage and mutations. Ah. So we are talking about these jo- uh, jumping genes because they often lead to sterility or death uh, in animals. And this, as a result, threatens uh, the, the survival of a species. Okay. 
Yes, so the high abundance of these jumping genes implies that organisms have survived millions, if not billions, of transposone uh, invasions, but little is known about where really uh, it comes from. So scientists have not really put their finger on exactly how did this all begin. Yeah, and how, how is it protecting itself in a sense? Yes, because it, it, it has survived for years and years so they're trying to look at this to find out how they can help us um survive <laughs> that's a always a good thing <laughs> yes <laughs> we love that as a species when we survive but how exactly is this repair happening in okay. the cells well animals have major classes of small rna which are identified as micro rna which is miRNA in short, the small interfering RNA, which is siRNA, and the PIW um, or PWE interacting RNA. So a pause occurs in the cell cycle just before the cell invasion, which allows for the DNA repair process to begin after day four, right? Okay. And then this, in, during this pause period, it is said to be necessary for adapt, adaptation, uh, for permanently silencing the invading jumping genes, thus allowing for normal egg production. That could begin within four days. They also discovered that the reproductive uh, stem cells boost production of non-coding RNA elements. Oh, so this pause is actually really important to make it possible from there. Yes, so that we can avert these uh, jumping genes. So these PIRNA clusters are strongly enriched with repetitive uh, sequences, which predominantly are uh, eminent in these transposones and are devoid of protein coding genes that suppress this jumping gene activity and activate a DNA repair process allowing for normal egg development. So you mentioned animals earlier, but as humans, we're always selfish. Whenever this kind of thing comes up, we're like, what does it mean for me, Bridget? Do I have these jumping genes? Most importantly, am I going to die? Of course, that's a very important question. So these researchers also studied the jumping genes in the fruit fly um, which is a classic model for the study of jumping genes in developing sperm and egg cells. So to create a condition conducive to carry out the study, they used a tool to control their activity. So they used environmental temperature to influence the severity of sterility in the fruit fly upon jumping gene invasion. Okay, so they tried to um, control all all the conditions of the space and, and make it so that they can observe this very thing. Yes, and you do know that with all of these trials, they do not just go and somers just do the tests on humans. <laughs> they have to try it on something smaller so that they can uh, replicate the process. So the temperature was set to 77 degrees where the offspring have sterile, they realized that the offspring have sterile uh, ovaries. While at 64 degrees, the offspring had fully developed and fertile ovaries. So the rate of variety were quantified at various rates and they found that the rate of jumping gene mobilization was seven times greater at 77 degrees. So you're talking degrees Fahrenheit here because this was an American yes. study, right? So yes. in, in South African terms, we're talking like room temperature, like 18 degrees, 50, uh, 25 degrees Celsius. Yes, and then just um, increasing or decreasing so that they can see the 
the variance in 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 the chain. Sure. So you know, so this was done in ovarian stem cells, which means we can simply use temperature to control the invasion intensity from jumping genes, according to the first author of the paper, who is Sung Jin Moon. Okay, so they were able to manipulate this, but Bridget, it sounds like there might just be a war happening in my cells as we speak. That's not very comforting. Yeah, it's not very comforting, but yeah, it is also a bit dramatic and a very creative way of putting it out there for our listeners as well. But yes, there is a continuous tug of, uh, of, of war for the survival of reproductive cells in our bodies. And in order for them to function, uh, this system or process is known as the, as the cornerstone of species survival. All right. I think that really puts it at a level where you and I can relate to it and really understand because as much as I may be interested in fruit flies and their genetics, (laughs) as you mentioned earlier, we always want to know um, how this relates to other animals, how this relates to us as a species and what we can learn on a genetic level. to to help and to understand better human um, genetic defect, possibly even death, like you said. Yes. So um, it'd be interesting to see how the scientists further this kind of research to understand it um, better. Yeah, it will be quite interesting once we hear what they've discovered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in my story, Elm, uh, Bridget, I'm referring to you as myself. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so in my story... Um, we're talking blood donation, so I'm going to out you here. Are you a blood donor or have you been a blood donor? Funny enough, you should mention this because I was speaking with somebody else and I was telling him that I can't anymore because of, you know, certain conditions. Like if you're anemic, you need that iron for yourself. So, yeah. Unfortunately, I'm not donating anymore. <laughs> it's okay. If that's if there's a medical reason, I think that's that's perfectly understandable. I've also been um, excluded many times for medical reasons. For um, if you've gotten a tattoo or a piercing, if you've had a certain surgery, they won't let you do it. Yeah. Um, but I am also just terrified of needles. I've got to tell you, which is not a good excuse. <laughs> I know it's a terrible excuse. And if you want to tweet us and say, Alna, get over yourself, please go donate blood. I will uh, I will definitely let you have that. But uh, as we know, blood donation is a super important part of medicine in any country, including here in South Africa. Um, and there is new, new research around the South African National Blood Service, SANBS, specifically around who is donating. I don't know if you want to venture a guess um, about the kind of people that are donating in the country. Well, I'd guess most South Africans are, you know, Africans. <laughs> so maybe I'd, I'd, I'd guess uh, that more Africans are donating, even well, though, yeah, even though other people. Um, are donating. One would think so because it's um, it's just demographically uh, viable, viable, right? Yeah. But here's the thing: it's not that simple. So this study that I want to talk about um, analyzed the last decade worth of data. Comes from Marion Vermeulen from SANBS, and she looked at the period between 2005 and 2015 specifically. 
why specifically during this period in time? So often when you hear this kind of study, it's just sort of random. That's when they started the research. But in this case, there's a very particular reason. So at the beginning of that period, there was a significant moment in South African blood donation. So in 2004, the government ordered the blood service to change their procedures because there was a big outcry around racial profiling, meaning black donors' blood was considered to be more risky, especially in terms of HIV AIDS and other race groups and was often discarded right so there was a lot of outcry and they were held to task and after that in 2005 they did change things up and implemented a new kind of test called individual donation nucleic acid testing IDNAT. I'm going to explain the science behind that in a second but they implemented it around the country um, SANBS is are saying they're the first in the world to have implemented it but I have found cases as early as 1997 in Germany where these tests were around and being used for specific things but very interesting and this test was meant to make blood supplies safer and create a more balanced and large donor base because each sample of blood was being tested it wasn't just oh you're this kind of person yeah, I, I do remember this dark period in our history because it did anger a lot of black people mm. and they were like, I'm not donating blood anymore. <laughs> but how did this, um, did, does it show how the study uh, worked? Well, despite the outrage that you're referring to, it actually over the last decade had a relatively positive effect. So most significantly, the number of black South Africans donating blood went up fivefold to almost a quarter of a million in 2005. So that's good. There was an increase with this new test and just fairer conditions, uh, which I think is the is the purpose in, in the end. And then in terms of the safety of blood, the new test does seem to have improved things significantly. So basically, the test uses a very sensitive molecular technique to pick up small amounts of viral nucleic acid. And thereby, you are detecting problems like hepatitis B and C, as well as HIV, before the body has even started to produce antibodies. Oh, excellent. Right? Yeah. So that means we don't need outdated racial profiling to know which blood is at risk because we're actually testing it. And over the decades studied, there was HIV found in only 0.2% of blood donations and only one single case of HIV transmitted via blood transfusion, which is terrible for that one case. Yes. But compare that, that one case in 10 years to one to two cases a year in the years before this new this this new um test. technology yeah. yeah so it ha does seem to have improved things greatly made things safer and most importantly uh, improved on the way that it was done before oh awesome because this sounds like it was just after the time when i or just during that time when i started donating blood because i started when i was like Round about that time. Yeah. You started a revolution, Bridget. Yeah, well, I'm so happy. <laughs> part of, you know, those guinea pigs, even though I don't like to refer much to myself as a guinea pig. But yeah, that's awesome. So it does have to be said that even though there have been these improvements, of course, we do still have a serious problem with blood supply in the country. Less than 1% of South Africans currently donate. And that puts the SANBS in a very difficult position. And 
let me use myself as an example. Most excuses that we have, like being scared of needles or being rejected in the past or being worried about the controversy from 2005, those excuses are nothing in the face of the reality that you may need blood. And your loved ones may need blood. And whether you know them or not, there are lots of South Africans who need your blood today. True. And so. yeah, and we need, we, we need blood. <laughs> <laughs> so you and me, listener, let's, let's, make a, let's make a pact, shall we? Let's get over our excuses and help out the SANBS if we can, especially given um, these great improvements in the, in the last decade. Sure. Some good news for once. That was our science news. And after the break, we get chatting with our feature scientist. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. You are with me, Elna Schutz, on the science inside. And what we do once a month is look at science not around a particular topic or particular news story, but around a particular person. We like to call it feature scientist. We have somebody in studio with us. We have a nice chat with them about all the work they do, as well as what it's like to be them as a scientist. And today we have Natalie Benjamin Damons, who is a young researcher in physiotherapy who focuses specifically on children with HIV, which is one of the things we'll be talking about today. She's currently a lecturer at the University of Witz, right here. She's completed her MSc in physiotherapy in 2010 and is awaiting the outcome of her PhD. She's published journal articles in local and international journals and is involved in local and international collaborations. Most recently, she's received the Research Excellence Award for Next Generation Researchers from the NRF, that's the National Research Foundation. So there's been, been some good attention just on her work and everything she's been doing behind the scenes. Natalie, it's so nice to have you in studio with us today. Hi, Elna and listeners, and thank you very much for having me on the show this evening. So, your work is mainly focused on the development of children growing up with HIV, as I was saying, and um, when we had a chat of air earlier, you were saying that we have about 550,000 children in South Africa who are currently living with HIV. But there is a bit of a split within that number of kids who have had the chance to be on ARVs for a while and those that for whatever reason haven't had that chance. Tell us a bit about how your work fits into this because in your PhD work, in your, um, in your research around this, you were trying some practical things at making the lives of these children better. Yes, that's right. Um, so in the research around HIV, a lot of it is focused on children younger than two, mm. um, newborns and, um, you know, younger children. And then, of course, um, older adolescents and young adults and older people living with HIV. So you can already see that there's a gap um, you know, from children of the age of three to about 14 Oh, years of age. And a lot of development happens in those years. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, the mistake a lot of people make is once kids are walking is to say, well, they're walking, so they're good to go. But nobody has really looked in depth at what are the consequences of living with HIV from a very young age when it comes to moving around and also being able to learn effectively when you're at school. 
Hmm. So tell us a bit about those consequences and what you've done in your study to try alleviate some of the difficulty. So um, in my study, the first part was to just have a look at how many children actually develop sensory neuropathy. Now, sensory neuropathy is basically when you're unable to feel your hands and feet and therefore you move and you touch differently. Um, Some of them actually develop pain, so they don't move because they're sore or their feet are aching. So instead of playing a full soccer match like normal children would they would either just play 15 minutes or one half and then stop to rest because they're either tired or they're in a lot of pain and um, from my research I found that there's a frequency of 25% of children living with sensory neuropathy which means that they have some disability around their nervous system and how they develop and you tried out an, a, a physical intervention of exercises to try to alleviate this? Yes, I did. So the program consisted of um, general exercises that they can do at home and ended with a massage program, which is where they were given a small handheld massager and they were shown how to massage their feet and their lower legs to help alleviate any pain or pins and needles that they may have felt. And... Um, The results of this research showed that a lot of the children showed an improvement in their function and we used a screening tool called the Movement ABC to test their gross motor function as well as some of their fine motor function and how this test works is that it places you in a robot system of either green and you're good so there's no physical deficits, amber that you have some physical deficits and that you need to be um, screened and then red where you need interventions such as either physiotherapy or occupational therapy to um, overcome the gaps that you may have. Many of the children that started on the exercise program were either on the amber and the red zones and they moved over to another category, which means that most of them ended up on the green category, which means that they were functioning better than they were before. And you're not using expensive medicine or crazy out of this world um, you know, interventions. You're using exercises and massage, you know, massage, which gives me such hope because it's things that anybody might be able to learn and apply um, to their children who are suffering. Absolutely. Um, And it's very simple exercises. Like you say, it needed no specific tools. It was little things like, you know, doing air cycling or going onto your toes, doing a few stretches, um, walking on the spot or even just walking for 10 minutes every day to improve Mm -hmm. both endurance and how the nervous system mobilizes itself. Mm. Now, Natalie, a lot of our listeners may have children in their lives, whether it's uh, your younger brother, your younger sister, maybe you have children of your own, um, but many many of them are, many of us are young adults. Um, how does this apply to young adults who maybe have been living with HIV for a long time or have even, uh, you know, recently uh, acquired it? So for those that have been living with HIV for a very long time, um, often they don't know what they don't know. (laughs) And this is definitely what we've seen in these children is that a lot of them couldn't feel their feet and they didn't know it. Oh, wow. 
just yeah so they couldn't tell the difference you know like if you have shoes that are too tight you'd know that you'd need to buy bigger shoes but they didn't know that mm. so you know those kind of things are things that we need to take into consideration and um it's important for people having lived with HIV for a very long time to make sure that they get screened, um, what we call a neurological screening for um, possible deficits in sensation. Um, if they have chronic pain, why they have chronic pain? Um, if they have fatigue, why they have fatigue? Um, because fatigue means that there's decreased endurance. If you have decreased endurance, it affects your ability to concentrate and to function normally, whether it's at school, whether it's at university and you're trying to learn and study, or whether you're at work and you're trying to concentrate and actually do your work efficiently. Mm. And is it possible that even later in life, the kind of interventions you're talking about, like exercise and massage, can make those symptoms better? Absolutely. There's a lot of research done in adult populations that show exercise actually does help improve symptoms and signs of, um, you know, the side effects of HIV mm. and the medications of HIV as well. Natalie, one of the reasons that I really wanted you on the show that I thought um, we need to talk about this research isn't um, just because it's about children and, and um our interventions can have a long-lasting, really positive effect. But because so much of the work around HIV, which we talk about a lot in this country, either has to do with um, the causes or the treatments in terms of medical treatments, ARVs. And I love that your work looks at um, the abilities of people living with HIV as well as uh, their life quality. What do you think needs to still happen in this field? I think there's a lot that still needs to happen in terms of us understanding exactly how HIV affects development in children, how it affects function in older children and young adults, and how we as rehabilitation specialists can actually make a difference in improving the quality of life, understanding whether they have pain why they have pain and how we can change that understanding if they have fatigue or decreased endurance and how we can change that to make sure that they um, live fuller lives mm. so some of your um your more recent and, and future work uh, goes a step further <laughs> excuse yes. the pun because you're looking at uh, at children living with hiv specifically how they walk that's correct, yes. So tell us about what you are hoping to do with that research. Why look at um, their style, their gait of walking? Okay, so one of the important parts of physiotherapy is our assessment. And part of our assessment is what we call movement analysis. And movement analysis can tell you exactly how a joint is moving, when it's moving, when it's supposed to be moving and how muscles are contracting or relaxing in relation to one another and around a joint. Gait analysis takes it a step further, it's more technical and understanding whether or not children living with HIV are moving differently will help physiotherapists in future to determine exactly where the intervention is needed, mm. when it's needed, and whether or not they may need interventions such as an orthotics, um, which is an insert in the shoe to change the way they walk if they have lower back pain, headaches, 
for example, it could just mean that they're walking differently. That's mm. all. You, you work in a very specific field, a very niche field, but is there something, uh, some take-home advice for our listeners who perhaps are not living with HIV but are hearing a physio um, and hearing all, um, the kind of breakthrough? that um, even simple things can bring. Is there something that we can learn for our lives regardless of what kind of illness or disability we're struggling with? Yes, we should not ever underestimate the power of exercise. Um, any kind of movement means that we are healthy or we are moving towards being healthier. Um, movement cannot replace any kind of medication ever. Um, it has huge benefits not only for people with depression um, and diabetes or heart conditions but society as a whole so if we could exercise for at least 10 minutes every day we would all be working towards a better future for ourselves hmm. it sounds so simple and yet it can have such big repercussions we are speaking to Natalie Benjamin Damons who is a physiotherapist specifically focusing currently on uh, children with HIV but as you hear much larger uh, knowledge that we can gain just as wherever we are whatever state our bodies are in we've been speaking to her on our feature scientist uh, segment here on the show but later in the show we will get back to Natalie because I want to know what it's like doing this kind of research what is it like being a young research scientist who's also a physiotherapist we'll get into a little bit more of that but after the break it's our unscience stay curious stay informed stay on the science inside it's now time for our unscience. It's the few minutes in the show where we look at something strange, wonderful, and unbelievable. Today's unscience was produced by Harmony Malefi. It has music from Ben Sound, Sound Dogs, and SoundBible.com. And the research comes from Lion uh, Neuroscience Research Center. We are here, as always, with our producer, Bridget LePere, bringing us something weird and interesting. Let's get into it. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. Okay, Bridget, what do you have for us? Okay, today we are talking about lizard dreams. Like dreams about lizards? No, about lizards actually having dreams. <laughs> <laughs> do you reckon that reptiles have dreams, Elna? I want to say no, because... Even if they did, how would I know that they have dreams? <laughs> like, what would they, what would they even dream about? Although then I think of dogs and cats, where sometimes you see them sort of moving in their dreams. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but like a dog kind of running away. So maybe, maybe I'm being too close-minded about this. I know dogs have dreams because I've seen my dog. Okay, <laughs> but lizards, <laughs> but lizards, I'm not sure. Well, but researchers from the National Center of Scientific Research have confirmed that lizards exhibit two sleep states like humans do. Okay, so if you're talking about those two sleep states, I'm assuming you mean deep sleep like we do um, or we have and then more shallow sleep.
guess that. <laughs> yes. As you have mentioned, there is a slow wave sleep and the rapid eye movement, which is called REM sleep. Like the so, band. Yes. <laughs> slow wave sleep is the constructive phase of sleep for regaining the mind-body system. And during REM, your eyes move quickly from a side to side due to the activity of your brain. Okay. So I think... I've already heard most of that when it comes to humans, but how did they come up with this in lizards? Well, one study demonstrated that Pogona um, viticep lizards also enter into these two sleep patterns. They also discovered that these sleep states stem from a common an ancestor of mammals and reptiles ah. and using this the team of um, the team of researchers at CNRS conducted another study on a totally different lizard the Argentine tegu human REM sleep is characterized by cerebral and ocular activity which is similar to that observed while awake so the same state is associated with slower eye movements in the case of lizards and unlike us, their cerebral activity seems not to be active and their data show that both these lizards have two sleep states much like us. Hmm, I'm still not convinced that means they're like daydreaming or like having these deep nightmares. I, I'm not convinced yet. Did they find out anything else? With the analysis of behavioral, psychological, physiological, I mean, and cerebral uh, perimeters, they found that differences not only exist between the sleep of uh, lizards and mammals of the two above-mentioned lizards. Okay, so in simple terms, we sleep and dream like lizards. You may say that. I'm <laughs> really, really but, but my dreams are so vivid so much is happening and I would like to think that I'm a slightly more evolved life form than a lizard I know right and uh, they say that during the uh, this sleep uh, the body carries out many vital activities such as consolidation of knowledge acquired during the day elimination of metabolical waste from the brain hormone production and replenishment of energy stores and it would appear that this phenomenon is shared uh, by all members of the animal kingdom and has been observed throughout evolution okay see that makes sense because you and i think of dreaming as maybe a terrifying or an enjoyable pastime in the sense but as you mentioned there's an important psychological reason for us going into deep sleep and mentally working through these things on a subconscious level so who am i to judge what a what a, what a lizard needs yeah just because you have a career doesn't mean a lizard doesn't have some sort of dreams of you know <laughs> activity so the letter associated with dreaming is a complex phase in which the body exhibits behavior in between the sleeping and waking hours so cerebral activities of mammals and lizards appear to be different you may be happy to know that we may sleep in similar ways but it has been proven that we dream differently okay ha i am vindicated <laughs> because i did not believe this that it's just the same that can't possibly be i'm not believing this okay
I hear you. Yeah, so well, it was just well, it was just me bringing you the, the science, and it's you know really interesting to find out about other living beings on this earth because we can't be conceited and think about us ourselves we're only. The, you know, we're the only ones who. Yeah, and that's where you know those evil activities come from. We just kill lizards and insects, you know, for no apparent reason. So if you know that they have dreams too, hey. Let them dream and have a future. Do you really want to be in a lizard's nightmare is what we're saying. (laughs) (laughs) You can be better than that. (laughs) That was our unusual, unlikely, unscience. I've got to say this is not something I had ever thought about before, maybe in a puppy or a kitten, but lizards dreaming. I wonder I wonder what we can learn about human dream patterns by studying lots of different species and, and their dreams. I am also smiling at the idea of scientists looking at lizards sleeping. Yeah. I mean looking at them the whole day because I have you have to catch them at some point while they're walking around, right? <laughs> Probably say, okay, <laughs> it's sleeping. Now. They probably had terrible dreams, let's be <laughs> honest. This is our unscience after the break. We get back to our feature scientists for the day. Stay curious, stay informed, stay on the science inside. Today, as every single first Monday of the month, we take some time to look at a specific scientist and their science, but also the person behind the science. We are with Natalie Benjamin Damons. Thank you for being on the show with us once again. So we've been speaking earlier about how you focus on physiotherapy, specifically around children and things like HIV and how to make their life better. But it's an incredibly specific niche grouping in the country. There's not a lot of people doing what you're doing, Natalie. No, there aren't. Um, You know, of the physiotherapists that are in the country, um, there's only about 1% of us who, who go into pediatrics as a field to Mm. practice specifically so you were saying to me earlier that you always wanted to become a teacher that's right but you had to sort of decide am i going to become a teacher am i going to go into medicine and then it feels like you found a middle way tell me a little bit more about what got you to this point um well like you said i've always wanted to be a teacher um my parents said no (laughs) no teaching profession for you and then um I wasn't sure if I could handle medicine, you know, in terms of um, dealing with mortality and things like that. Um, And also the long hours, you know, not that physios don't work long hours. Um, And then I went into physiotherapy, not really being sure of of what it is that it it entails or whether I would enjoy it. But just the, you know, exposure to how we deal with people is what really drew me into the career and made me stay. Um, Specifically, you know, the neurology side of things and um, how it challenges your thinking that every patient that you see is so different and requires a different use of your skills. Hmm. And and then how did you get from that to focusing specifically on HIV and the work you've done? So like I said to you earlier on, um, the, the 
the, the area of, of pediatrics and HIV is one that doesn't have a lot of research in it and um, yet these children are going to school, are expected to perform the same way all the other children are. A lot of them are being labelled as being um, really naughty or they have ADD or ADHD and it's not actually that, it's just the fact that they cannot cope with the work that mm. they're supposed to be doing and they're not getting the support that they need. Mm. Yeah. So. You are in an interesting position because you um, are a lecturer, you're in academia, you've done research, but then you also have a great passion for actually doing the clinical work and being a physiotherapist, working um, with people. For those of us listening who are interested in science but see these fields as so separate, I need to either be an academic or be a lecturer or be a a clinical worker. What do you have to say about um, combining or dividing those? I think it's important to combine it because as a lecturer, you are training future physiotherapists and um, you need to have those skills in order to transfer them. Um, And for me, it's very important to maintain my hands-on skills because things change in the clinical field and it changes very quickly. And if I'm not in touch with those changes, then I, it's a, I'm in a difficult position in terms of teaching the students. Um, there's also the, the preconception that um, academics are not clinically inclined, mm-hmm. um, which is not the truth in any way. Um, we, we are clinicians and we always will be clinicians, whether we are researchers. And when you are doing research, you are working with patients. So there is no way to separate the two, really. Mm. Has doing this work become a passion for you, specifically working with children and HIV? Often we... Um, we get into these very specific fields of work because there's a need there or because it just makes sense for our research. But be honest, has it softened your heart? Oh, absolutely. It has. (laughs) I love the kids that I work with. I really do. Um, it, It makes you feel useful, like you're really adding to society as a whole by making a small difference, by making a small contribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have kids yourself, you're a mom. What is it like practically to be a scientist, a researcher, but also somebody who, as you said, are, is still active in the medical side of things? What is it really like being this kind of scientist? It's hard work. It's really hard work. Um, and it's even harder having to balance a good home life uh, with with my kids and um, being able to be productive at work as well and it makes an incredible difference to have a good support system which my husband has been doing an exceptional job with. So to end Natalie what is something that you would love for us to take home about your field you work in something very specific not everybody may have known about it before they listened to this show what is one thing ordinary people should know about your field of research that we are working towards making people's lives better in in ways that people cannot imagine you know so it's it's not about taking another tablet it's not 
about reading another book. It's about us physically doing something to improve the lives of people living with HIV. And go out there and go to the gym. Or Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> go take a jog. Yes, or take a walk around the block. Um, spend some time with your kids playing. All of that adds up. She has been our featured scientist for today. It's Natalie Benjamin Damon. It's been so great chatting to you. Thank you so much for coming through to studio. Thank you very much for having me, Elna. You're still on the science side. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. It's been a good show on the Science Society today with Natalie Benjamin Damon, our feature scientist. I love these shows because it gives us some room to breathe. We're not just focusing on a specific scientific breakthrough or topic, but we're really looking at it a little bit more holistically. Um, and in this case, speaking about children with HIV and how their lives can be improved gives us so much to take away for all of our lives, for how we are aware of our bodies and what we're doing to improve our physical quality of life, regardless of what kind of challenges we may or may not have. It's been really good to also hear from Natalie how she navigates some of um, these these particularities of being in a very niche field and then having a full life beside the science. It's been a good one and a big thank you does go to Natalie Benjamin Damon for joining us in studio today. Our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Lepehe and Harmony Malefi. Take today by Nklakadi Potrobo. And if you miss the show, don't worry because the podcast is on iTunes as The Science Inside or you can go to our website vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. All of our shows are there. Anything that you missed, want to know about anything we've done, just go there. You'll find it all or on Facebook and Twitter as at Vow FM. The Science Society is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. My name is Elna Schutz, and I will be with you again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on Vow FM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.